traditions during this time of the year and forget or neglect altogether the coming of Christ. And so in our mission as a church to grow into maturity in the faith and grow into maturity in Christ, we want to remind us that Christmas is not about unwrapping presents or meeting with family or singing uh, caroling songs or anything like that. Christmas is about Christ. It's about the birth of Christ and all that that means to us. And the third and final thing that we identified last week as really the greatest fear is that even among us again, and certainly around the people we work with and live next to and encounter in town and across the state, there are many unbelievers who hear of the birth of Christ and have no understanding of it and have no idea of the meaning or the message of the gospel. And the fear is that during the Christmas season, they hear snippets or bits of the gospel, and instead of being changed by it, they're becoming callous to it. And so we want to lay out a full and clear understanding of the gospel, primarily through the birth of Christ, so that we can share it to those unbelievers who are missing out on its true meaning, and missing out when they hear it, and when they sing it, and when they see it. And so we have decided to examine those implications and benefits of what exactly it means for us that Christ came to earth. And if you remember last week, we began with Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and we began by establishing that the primary purpose of Christ coming to earth was what? To establish peace with God for us. That's the most important, that's the greatest need of human beings is to have that obstacle of sin, that guilt of sin removed so that we can now have peace with God. That is our most important need. And although it is our greatest need, truth is we cannot do anything to reconcile that need. We can't do anything to fix that problem. And so last week we talked about Jesus came to earth, Romans chapter 4, verse 25, to be delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification because Romans chapter 5, verse 1 Justification through faith is what leads to peace with God through Christ. And so our Lord Jesus came to make us justified before God, declared innocent, to pardon our guilt, to pardon our sin, so that we can now have peace with God. That church is the most important purpose and mission of Christ coming to earth. Because what is the opposite of peace with God? It is opposition to God. It is hostility with God. That's what sin earns us. That's the obstacle that sin places before us. Not just separation with God. And not just earthly consequences, but hostility with the holy God. For the holy and the unholy cannot cohabitate. The godly and the ungodly do not coexist. And so apart from Christ, we have no peace with God, but the greatest and ultimate blessing of Christ's coming is that He meets our greatest need by bringing salvation to sinners, bringing justification that declares us innocent before God in the courts of God that we may have now peace with God. And so I want us to understand as we examine the birth of Christ that it's not just an isolated event about his birth. It's the first step in the final step of securing our salvation. For ages, God has promised salvation through a Savior. Here, when Christ comes to the earth, that's the final stage of securing salvation through the cross and the resurrection. The birth is the first step in the final stage. So we look at the birth and we see our salvation. We, we look at the birth and we're simultaneously filled with sorrow, aren't we? Because we know this baby is going to grow up and, and live a life and be falsely accused and, and once and finally go to the cross and be nailed to the cross for our sins. So there's sorrow that this baby's being born because of our sin, but there's great joy because when we read and celebrate the birth of Christ, we find wrapped and intertwined with it the salvation of humanity, the very reason for Christ's coming. So, so this birth, this time of the year, this celebration is something special for us, church. I think about Paul in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem his people, to purify his people as his own possession, who are zealous for good works. That's what it means that Christ came. He is the grace of God who has brought salvation to justify us before God, give us peace with God, and to change us from the evil people we once were indulging in our sinful nature to now living upright and godly lives in the present age. And so that was last week. We hopefully celebrated and hopefully came to a a new adoration or a new um, joy in the coming of Christ because we we stress the importance of having peace with God and that only comes through Jesus Christ. And praise God, Jesus Christ came to bring it. But what I want us to see this morning is that there's actually more, still more, to the coming of Christ. While the ultimate benefit or blessing afforded to humanity by the coming of Christ is peace with God and salvation and justification, there's still more that we have as a blessing from God through the coming of God. And so today we turn our attention to the fact in John chapter 1 that the coming of Christ reveals to us our true God. The coming of Christ reveals God. In other words, Christ has made God known in the greatest possible way and in great clarity. Because of Christ, we can look at the character of God We can see the desires of God. We can see the heart of God and on and on and on, the person of God. We can begin to relate to God because of Christ. And so to look at His coming as only an event of salvation is really a wrong way to look at it, although that's the primary means of it. The other way we can look at it, and what we'll find that John's trying to stress to us in chapter 1 that the coming of Christ reveals to us, makes known to us the God of the universe. And that's clearly seen in our text this morning, John chapter 1. We're going to be in, I'm sure you already know, verse 14. John's gospel is centered upon and directed upon, written for the purpose of uh, people being able to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, uh, you may have eternal life in His name. That's found at the end of the Gospel of John, his summary statement of why he wrote this book. So John's whole Gospel is building up towards that point. He wants us to know the deity of Christ and believe in Christ and be saved by Christ, have eternal life in Christ. And so John's account of the birth or the coming of Christ is seen from a far different perspective and even really a theological kind of perspective. In John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, we call this John's prologue or the introduction to his gospel. Verses 1 through 18, he's summarizing basically everything he's going to flesh out the rest of his gospel. The other 21 chapters, you'll find the same truths mentioned in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. This summary prologue here. So it's going to be fitting as we look at it and as we read it that he's pointing out the deity of Christ and he's pointing out the purpose of Christ in revealing to us the person of God. And so let's back up into John chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll read the whole prologue and then back up to the verse we're going to look at this morning. I want you to notice as we read through here the words that John uses uh, in repetition. John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Our verse for this morning, verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the first thing I want you to note about that verse is that the birth of Christ reveals the person of God. The birth of Christ reveals the person of God. Of God. That's the first part of verse 14. I want you to consider for a moment with me, if you will. Consider this. What if God had been silent about himself? What if he had decided not to make himself known beyond what we see in creation? So he exists. He possesses his attributes. He possesses his holiness. He still has his expectations, he still has his laws, but he's decided not to make them known or to make himself known in any way. Consider if he had never spoken to us, never gave us his word, never laid out his expectations for humanity, although he still possessed them. Consider the darkness and the wondering that you and I would be in if God did not reveal himself. And so even in just that thought, we begin to see that the revelation of God is the greatest treasure for humanity. That God has actually made Himself known. And not just that He made Himself known, but He desired to make Himself known. God wanted us to know Him. God wants us to know Him. Because He has that desire... You and I are able to, and I, I need you to wrap your heart around this as best as you can. You and I are able to open the pages of Scripture and know the God of heaven. We're able to read about Him. To see what He thinks about things. To see what He expects of us. To see what He's concerned about. To see what He loves and what He hates. And what brings Him joy and what grieves His heart. We're able to see His nature. We're able to see His attributes. We're able to know His substance, His essence. We're able to know His very existence. We're able to know His dwelling, His power, His authority. We're able to know His holiness, His goodness, His patience, His mercy, His offer of forgiveness, His kindness. On and on and on down that list. Everything you know about God is because God has graciously revealed Himself to you. Church, that is of immense importance, isn't it? Without God revealing Himself, we would not know that we have transgressed Him. Without knowing that we've transgressed Him, we would not know that we need to be saved. And if we did not have God revealing Himself, we would not know how to be saved. Everything that we have that's good from God begins with the fact that He has revealed Himself to us. He has desired to make Himself known. And so we ask that question, how has He made Himself known? And there are really an abundance of ways that He has revealed Himself. But we want to establish this morning that God has revealed Himself in no clearer way than through Jesus Christ. God has made Himself known in no better way than through Jesus Christ. In fact, church, this is what separates us 
from the other religions and beliefs of the world, right? If you deny Jesus, you deny God. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. That's the difference between Christianity and Islam. That's the difference between Christianity and Hinduism. Any other religion that even minimizes Christ minimizes God. Because we know that Scripture teaches Christ is the clearest, most glorious picture and revelation of God. And that's what John's trying to teach us in John chapter 1, verse 14. I want you to notice a unique word there that is uh, unique to John's gospel, a word that you've heard before, a word that we've used in reference to Christ before. John says, calls him, gives him the title of the word. And throughout my life, I've always thought that a peculiar title for Christ and somewhat vague. And it took me a long time to really under understand why John just exactly why John would want to call Jesus the Word. But we, as we unpack this verse and think upon the things of God, we can begin to see it's, it's quite a fitting title for Christ. He begins his gospel in verse 1, uh, mentioning this word three different times, using the same word to describe the word three different times. If you look back up into verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3, we can start to begin... To get an idea of, of who John's talking about. In verse 1 he talks about this word being in the beginning. This word was with God. In fact this word was God. Then in verse 2 John changes his language. And uses the pronoun he. So now all of a sudden this abstract idea. Or this mysterious idea. And this mysterious title of the word. Is now personified. It's made into a, a person. And he's given the pronoun he. In fact, in verse 3, he's going to do the same thing. All things were created through him, and without him was not anything made. So now we can understand John, when he's using this term, the word, he's talking about a person. I'm just trying to connect the dots for you this morning. He further identifies this word in verse 14. When he says this word became flesh, and then he says, and we have seen the glory of this word. Glory is of the only son from the father. So now it's not just a he, but it's a son. And it's a son of the father. And this son in verse 14 is full of grace and truth. Skip down to verse 17. And for the first time in his gospel, John identifies who he's talking about. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The first time John uses his name. And so as we connect the dots and trace everything back, we become we begin to realize Jesus Christ is this one who possesses uh, grace and truth, who is of the, the son from the father, who must be the word who became flesh. Therefore, Jesus is the word that was in the beginning, the word that was with God, the word that was God. So John is applying specifically this title of the word to Jesus. So now our question becomes, why? Why is Jesus referred to as the Word? You think, begin to think about, even just in a cursory manner, how God communicates and how God has ordained that we communicate. God always communicates through words. In fact, God has created you and I to communicate through words. We can't read each other's minds, although I think I've convinced Ava that I can. We can't read minds. We can't uh, push messages to and from each other without the use of words in some form or fashion. We teach our children with words. We teach them to write words, to read words. We instruct them with words. Even when you and I think, we think with words. You don't think in abstract concepts. You think with words. You're, just, you're almost talking to yourself in your own mind with words so god has made humanity to communicate with words in the early part of the old testament we know that god often spoke audibly with words didn't he adam and eve in the garden he's visiting with them using words and fast forward he even with cain and abel he visits with them with words we can move up to noah 
he talks to Noah with words. Abram, he talks to Abram with words. Jacob with words. Even up to Gideon with words. God spoke audibly and communicated to them with words. He's made it to where we can only communicate with words. Later parts of the Old Testament, how did God communicate? Through His prophets. But what does His prophet say? Thus saith the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. The prophets carried the weight of the words of God when they spoke on behalf of God. As Protestants and on this side of the cross and this side of the New Testament, we know and we hold that God has spoken through His written word, the Bible, right? Everything that God wants to say to us is right here. You don't have to search in some spiritual, mysterious fashion to discern what God wants you to know. Everything He wants you to know is given to us in the written word. You can actually read to see what God wants to tell you. Even in creation. How did God bring everything about? He spoke them with His word. Before He'd even created humans to communicate with words, God Himself used words. Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is said to uphold the universe by the what? Word of His power. I share those brief examples to say Scripture places a very, very, very high value on God's words because God reveals Himself through His words. And in that fashion, there is almost no better title for Christ. If God reveals Himself through His words, through words in general, then Christ is most certainly the Word. He is the fullest and clearest revelation of the purpose of the person of God. John's giving him this title in, in verse 1 and in verse 14 to communicate to us that Jesus, this man you're, you're about to read about in the rest of my gospel, this man who's going to be born, is the ultimate and fullest and clearest expression of God Almighty. In fact, the rest of Scripture teaches that. If you look back into the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, a Christological passage, you need to underline this verse if you haven't already. It says concerning Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Colossians chapter 1, another Christological passage. You need to underline this verse if you haven't. Talking about Jesus, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God. John chapter 1, at the end of his introduction here, verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's, high, uh, Father's side, but Jesus has made Him known. Church, this is the Word of God. The clearest revelation of God. This means for you and I, the coming of Christ makes known the person of God because Christ is the revelation of God. This is such a blessing. Looking into the face of Christ, we can look into the face of God and reading and knowing Jesus, we can know God. Coming of Christ is a wondrous, wondrous miracle for us. John doesn't stop there. Because not only is Jesus the full revelation of God, the, the final, we could say, and complete and ultimate picture of God, but He is also, according to verse 14, the personal revelation of God. And we need not miss this fact. That God is not distant from us. He's involved with us. He's personal with us and He's intimate with us. And He didn't just reveal Himself in abstract terms. He revealed Himself in the very most personable way possible. John tells us in verse 14, this Word, this revelation of God, became flesh. The clearest picture of God, church, is now found in flesh and blood. He's now found in a physical, visible form. And that 
is what makes the incarnation of Christ so wonderful, so profound, so mysterious, so glorious, and such a blessing to you and I. Because it's here in, in this verse alone that we can begin to under, understand the infinite God became finite, didn't He? So that we could know Him. The eternal God entered into time for your sake, for my sake. The invisible God became visible that we may know Him. The supernatural God entered into the natural. The God who created all things submitted Himself to the very laws of creation that He instituted. Even the laws of the human body. The limitations of the human body. The God who never tires is found sleeping. The God who owns the earth and the fullness thereof became the son of a very poor carpenter having to earn his own living. The God who dwells in the heavens, church, is now found living in a very small, obscure Galilean village. It's not even on the map. Begin to understand the wonder that the Word would become flesh. That Christ, that God, would make Himself known to you and I in such a personal way. In fact, when John uses this term that He took on flesh, he's implying all that comes along with being a human being. That's Paul's point in Philippians 2, at least part of Philippians 2, when he says that Christ was in the form of God, but He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of a human being. He, he really was a man. He experienced and knew all the struggles of living this life in the flesh. He knew the struggles of being a human being, the chaos of being a human being. He knew the limits of of being a human being, just, just in a cursory manner, begin to fathom the God who is uncontainable is now found limited in a human body. He begins to understand hunger, filth, tiredness, exhaustion. In every way, only without sin, Christ was made a man. God was made a man. Which means, like I've touched on, those who lived around him had the awesome, once-in-a-lifetime privilege of looking into the face of God, didn't they? They could eat dinner with him and eat breakfast with him. They could wake up and see him in the morning. They got to know him. They got to go fishing with him. They got to work with him. They got to do ministry with him. They got to enjoy his company. They got to talk with him and laugh with him and ask him questions. Church, you need to understand the God of the heavens, the most high, most glorious, most holy God was actually and is actually relatable and approachable. And let's take that just to another level, shall we? This most glorious, most holy God was incredibly accessible to sinners. He who is holy and cannot dwell with the unholy is found having dinner with sinners and tax collectors. And the, the religious leaders are in shock. The very fact that God not only was personally revealing Himself to us, but that He was making Himself accessible to us through Christ. And that's not just true for the people who were living and breathing in the time that Christ walked on the earth, church. That's, that's true of us today, isn't it? As we read the pages of Scripture, isn't our Lord relatable to us now? Isn't God who was, who was and who is so transcendent and so far above and so far beyond us, isn't He now in the face of Christ understandable to some degree and relatable to some degree and approachable to some degree? He who we cannot fathom even in our greatest intellect is now found where we can see His words. We can watch Him interact with people. We can know God, church. We can relate to Him. 
we should rejoice that the coming of Christ not only revealed God, but it did so in the most personable and intimate of ways. So that you can commune with God Almighty. You can share your heart with Him and read about His heart. It's not just, though, that the Word became flesh. John continues on. He also dwelt among us. This word dwelt, it means to pitch your tent or to make your camp or to make your living. And so we read here and we find out that God not only became flesh, He made His living among us. He lived here with us. Lived in this world. And if man's greatest treasure is to know God, and if God made Himself known through Christ, then Christ dwelling on the earth, living on this earth like us, really happens in church. It is of immense value. It's the greatest treasure. In fact, we begin to now see the love of God, don't we? God so loved humanity and so desired to save humanity and so desired to make peace with Himself and mankind that He submitted Himself to all that comes along with living in this world. All the experiences of this life, even as we saw in the Gospel of Luke, even allowing Himself to be tempted. God allowing the enemy to tempt Him Christ, as He lived on this earth, had to wash His hair, clip His toenails. He dealt with the cold just like we did. He knew what it meant to have to gather for your food and provide for your family and make a living and work and deal with other people. I think it's such a wonderful picture that this glorious and holy and all-powerful God is now found living as a man on the earth. And I think it shows the depths of God's amazing desire to save sinners. But the fact that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us really carries a a far deeper meaning than just that He experienced this life to identify with us. Christ took on flesh and He dwelt among us, church, because... This was actually necessary for salvation. Because man had sinned, right? And man needed to atone for sin. Unfortunately, man could not live the perfect life required to atone for sin. And so God, so loving humanity, decided to become man, to die on behalf of man, and to dwell with man, to live the perfect life for man to be that perfect sacrifice on the cross. His taking on flesh and His dwelling among us wasn't arbitrary. It was for the purpose of saving your soul. Christ is found here revealing God, revealing God in a personal, intimate way and revealing to us the very depths of the desire of God to save us. He is willing to go so far to don Himself and human flesh that He created and lived the life we couldn't live. The very nervous system Jesus had created, He was going to experience with every thrust of the nail through His wrist. Every drop of blood that came down from His brow, He had created the body to do that, and He was going to experience it Himself so that you could have peace with God. That church is revealing to us, isn't it? It is revealing that God wants humanity to be reconciled to Him through Christ. So there is no clearer picture of God than Jesus. There is no clearer revelation of Him than Jesus. And Jesus is beginning to reveal to us God's immense desire for you to be saved. Let's move rather quickly now this morning. The second thing I want you to know about the verse, and and I'll just begin to summarize here. Jesus not only revealed the person of God, but the birth of Christ revealed the magnificence of God. You look there and John says, 
Well, he actually begins to use this, this series of what I call compounding ands. He's building upon himself. So he, he could finish the sentence with this awesome truth and this awesome fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us, but he's not done and he's excited. And so, and there's something else coming. And he says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Here, John is uh, kind of getting personal somewhat. And he's using the word seen. I, I remember I'm, I'm an eyewitness. I'm a testimony to what I'm about to tell you. I've seen the glory of Christ. And I've seen the glory of Christ in such a way, it's unmistakable to me, it's the glory of, the, of God the Father. It's a glory that, that could only be from the Son of the Father. You can only think when you read that verse and that, that portion of this verse that John is maybe recalling all the things he witnessed of Christ. John was one of the closest three of the disciples. The end of this gospel, he even reminds us that if all the things that Christ had taught, said, and done were written down in, the, in, in books, I don't think the world itself could contain all the books. I mean, John's mind and John's heart are so impacted by life with Christ, he's just flooded with memories of everything Jesus has done. And we can consider a few of them, can't we, John? would have seen Jesus give sight to the blind. He would have seen Him give uh, hearing to the deaf and uh, a voice to the mute and healing the lame and cleansing the leper. He would have witnessed Christ walking on the water and raising Lazarus from the dead and even raising others from the dead. John was there when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. Ultimately, John was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And so for John, there is no question. I have seen the glory of Christ and I recognize it as the glory of God. This is, this is who I'm talking about. This is who became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the Word. This is how He's revealed God. He has shown His glory. And as we think upon that, let us think upon it in the context of the verse as well. First, we know how Scripture describes the glory of God, don't we? Unapproachable. Scripture describes the glory of God as deadly. Would Moses say, God, I just want to see you. And God said, you can't. You'll die. But I'll, I'll, I'll wedge you in this cleft of the rock, Moses, so that when I do pass by, you won't fall down dead. And I'll cover your face. And for just a glimpse at the end, I'll remove my hand as my goodness passes by. And the Hebrew literally says, I'll let you see the glory of my backside for a brief moment. And it happens. And what happens? M Moses walks away. His face is shining for the rest of his life. He has to wear this veil because he's scaring the Israelites. Glory of God in Scripture is described as radiant. It's described as holy. It's described as unlike anything you or I know of. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah gets a vision of the glory of God, just a, a brief vision of it, he falls down and the, the Hebrew there says he's actually wringling around in pain saying, woe is me. John's going to write the book of Revelation at the end of his life and he says, I saw a vision of the one on the throne and I fell down like dead. No one can stand in the presence of the glory of God. Verse 18, John says again in this gospel, no one has ever seen God. You don't even... Fathom, you can't even grasp the glory of our God. It's unlike anything you know. And we consider that kind of glory, that glory that John is applying to Christ, to the Word, that glory that he's, he says has been revealed to him, that we have seen that's of the only Son from the Father, that glory, church, considered in the context of one simple word at the beginning of verse 14, that glory became something. That glory became something for us. And, and what did He become? Humble. Let's consider this word became because it means that He was something previously and we know what that previously was. Back up into verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3, He was previously pre-existent. 
He's outside of time, outside of creation. He's beginning in the beginning before there was anything else. He was with God in perfect fellowship. He was God, equal in power and authority. Verse 2, he's in the beginning before all things are made. Verse 3, now he's listed as the creator. Here's who John is talking about, this pre-existent creator who is far more bigger than creation, outside of time, not bound by anything in the universe, has now became flesh. Why? For you. For me. That we could know God. Such glory, such radiance, such splendor, and such majesty looks upon a rebellious, sinful human race and says, I love them enough to become flesh for them, to live among them, and to be sacrificed for them. Here, church, we not only begin to see that Christ's birth reveals the magnificence of God, but in the magnificence of God, Christ's birth reveals the love of God. Who dare would leave such glory for me? How many kings stepped down from their throne? How many lords have abandoned their home? This is the depth of the love of God for you and for me, for us to be saved. So believer, rest and rejoice in this. Let this change your adoration towards God and towards Christ. Let this change the way you view Christmas. And please, please, please let this change the way you evangelize. God so wants the sinners to be forgiven. Jesus Himself said, I didn't come to call the, the healthy. It's not, not the healthy who need a physician. It's the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinner. I knew what I was getting into. And I knew who I'm dealing with. And I still want them to be saved. This is Christ, church. And not only was this unapproachable, glorious God born we carry that to the logical end he would even allow himself to be nailed to the cross it's outstanding to me that the god of the universe would allow uh, his enemy to tempt him it's even more outstanding to me that the god of the universe would allow some romans to nail him to a hunk of wood and allow his side to be pierced and allow his face to be punched and to spit on and allow a ring a crown of thorns to be beat into his brow. We, we cannot question God's willingness to secure salvation. God most certainly hates sin, but God has demonstrated, even in this verse alone, that He loves to save sinners. So the coming of Christ reveals the person of God, and as He reveals the person of God he reveals the magnificence of God and as he reveals the magnificence of God the glory of God he reveals the love of God for us finally real quickly God reveals or the birth of Christ reveals the mercy and motive of God because John says that he became flesh and dwelt among us we've seen his glory We've witnessed His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here the mercy of God is made known and the motive of God is made known that He could extend to us grace and truth. I want you to notice just real quickly the phrase or, or just the one word there, full. He is full of grace and truth. His dispensing grace, His arsenal of grace never runs out. It never runs dry. It's never empty. It's never weak or weary. It's never sparse. He's not hoarding some of it for times of famine. He's full of grace and truth. In fact, John's going to tell us, verse 16, and from that fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. In other words, from the fullness, from the full treasures of the grace of Christ, He keeps pouring it out upon us. He keeps lavishing it on us. Aren't we believers testimonies of that? Our changed hearts, church, are testimonies 
that God is rich in grace and He lavishes it out. God's common grace is rich. He allows every one of us a breath, believer and unbeliever alike. He's allowing us to eat. He's giving us shelter. He's providing for our needs. And as believers, He's sanctifying our hearts. He's growing us in maturity in Him. He's strengthening our walk with Him. Hopefully, by the time you're at the end of your life, you can say, I've never walked so close with God. That is the grace of God. And He's full of it. And He's lavishing it over and over and over upon us. His grace is is simply the outflow of His goodness and love towards us. It's just bursting forth. It's seen in His forgiveness. It's seen in His patience. It's seen in His compassion. Verse 17, John says it's even in contrast to His law. The law came through Moses, and that's good and great, but John's stressing the point, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's this glorious Maker, this glorious God who has His throne in the heavens, who rules and reigns over all things and looks at a hostile, rebellious human race and instead of annihilation, He extends grace. Christ didn't, what? He didn't come to condemn John chapter 3. He came that the world may have life through Him. Let me just give you a word of warning, unbeliever. Condemnation is coming for the unbeliever. But the birth of Christ brought forgiveness and grace. So that everyone who experiences the grace of Christ and the justification of Christ has therefore no condemnation. He didn't come to condemn. He came to extend grace. But He also came to extend truth, didn't He? He wanted to make known the truth of God, make known God's expectations, and ultimately make known God's way of salvation. You and I are not wandering around again trying to figure out what God wants of us. Christ has clarified His truth. Made known the thoughts of God. We don't have to discern through the weeds between what may be true and what may be false. You can open the pages of Scripture and know every word is as true as God is true. We don't have to decipher We don't have to wonder. Christ came to make known the will of God and that will of God is salvation. I simply want you to consider this morning the great benefits of Christ coming to earth. Like I said last week, ultimately that's seen in providing salvation which leads to peace with God. That's our greatest need. But even so today, the coming of Christ reveals to us our God, His deep love for humanity, His deep love to save humanity. And He didn't send His Son with a rod of iron. That'll come later. He sent His Son full of grace and truth. Extend grace and forgiveness to anybody who will come to you in faith. That is who our God is. That's what our God has revealed about Himself in church. That changes the way we adore Him, doesn't it? It changes the way we worship. It changes the way we think of Christmas and His birth. We can know God because Christ came to, to the earth for us. We know Him personally and intimately. And oh, how I pray that you will. The success of a church and the health of a church is not measured by its attendance ever. Measured by its people walking with a God who is knowable. It's measured by us seeking God. And I, I so pray and desire and work towards the goal of you being able to say, I have no greater joy than spending time with God. Unbeliever, let me, let me tell you something. You're, you're missing out on the greatest gift given to humanity. You're missing out on the greatest treasure offered to anyone who's ever lived and ever will live. You can be saved, forgiven of your sins because Christ has already done the work for you. And you can have peace with God through Him. You can know this God who became flesh for you. 
who dwelt among you to live the perfect life you couldn't, who displayed the glory and love of God, who came full of grace and truth. You can know Him and have a relationship with Him. If only you will come to Him in faith. Now. Church, I pray that as we consider the birth and coming of Christ, we will simply just be moved to a greater diligence of worship, of thanksgiving, of adoration, of celebration, of dedication to God. We will be moved by such love. And that you will take time even in your own heart today, this week, to stop everything and simply get alone with the Lord and thank Him for the great blessing of making God known to us in such a marvelous, marvelous way. Father, we thank You for Your Word because in it we can know You and we thank You for Christ because through Him we can know You so clearly and personally and intimately. God, I have a relationship with You because of Jesus. Knowing this, Father, means that this Christmas holiday that our country celebrates can never be the same for me. I see it so totally different because I know what it means that you were born. Sear that upon our hearts, O God, that your birth means that we can have peace with you through faith in you and your sacrifice. It also means that we can know you Know you as, as best as you have revealed yourself. I pray, God, this changes, touches our hearts, renews our motivation, speaks deeply into our souls, O oh God. Oh Father, as my heart and my mind begins to meditate, even just in an elementary kind of way, upon the greatness of who you are, and to consider the word that you became flesh and dwelt among us for our salvation is tremendous, God. It, it strikes me in such a emotional way, Father, that You came not full of condemnation, but full of grace and truth. You are so willing to forgive and save if people would only come. We beg, God, that You would pierce their hearts. And for us, Father, who are believers, let this truth of Your birth and the desire you have to forgive us, chase away every doubt and every fear that we have and let it be our foundation for joy and rest and confidence and evangelism, God, and worship. Oh, how I pray, Lord, your birth increases within us a greater desire and a greater walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray.